when a story is being told, uh, whether it's in a book or a movie or any medium, when a story is being told, the most skilled authors like to include an unexpected turn. Uh, one of my oldest friends is a screenwriter in Hollywood. She calls it the twist. There's always a twist in a good story. Now, the twist catches us by surprise, but the best twists are ones that actually make sense. Okay? In other words, these, these twists in the story are in keeping with the characters. They're in keeping with the plot. One of the finest plotters of stories today is this lady, Megan Whalen Turner. You never see her twists coming in her books, and yet they always make sense. As you look back through the story, they always fit. They fit the characters and the story. Probably the most famous modern example is when Darth Vader says in The Empire Strikes Back, No, I am your father. Right? That's probably the most famous. Now, the Star Wars world is so ingrained in our thinking that it's very easy to forget how incredibly shocking that twist is when somebody doesn't know the story and they see The Empire Strikes Back for the first time. The, the, it's really well done because the, the clues were there all along, but you nev- nobody ever sees that coming. M. Night Shyamalan, uh, he has made a career producing stories that have a, a surprise twist. One of his earliest films was this one, The Village. Um, in the story, The Village of Covington is a typical 19th century pre-industrial self-sufficient town uh, Covington is surrounded by really, really thick woods that seem to go on forever and ever, and, and the woods are full of, of monsters. And in the film, there are those we don't speak of, which is poor English, but it's how they say it. Um, those of whom we don't speak. Now, the surprising twist in the village, the surprising twist is when you find out that Covington is not a 19th century village. It's actually in modern-day Pennsylvania. It's in the middle of this huge wildlife refuge. It has a fence around it. One of the characters escapes, gets on the other side of the fence, and you find out it's modern-day. It wasn't a 19th century village. In the late 1970s, the elders of this village took all their people, and they retreated in the middle of this place and made up this story because they wanted to, they wanted to retreat from all of the pain and the, and the conflict of the outside world. Now, I wonder if M. Knight has read the Bible because that same twist, although reversed, occurs in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Look at this. Look, here's what we have so far in Matthew 5, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We, we've, we've studied most of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and we've learned three things. Okay, here's the three big ideas. The first is those who follow Jesus are blessed. They are blessed. And the word used is makarios. Uh, it was our fancy word last time we were together, makarios. Uh, you get to say it on the count of three. One, two, three. Makarios. Okay, now the second big point is that a Makarios blessing, that word Makarios, it means a blessing or a favor, but get this, it is a guaranteed, either, either present or future guaranteed part and parcel of a person's state of being. This is part of what it means to be who you are. It's, it's a given. Okay, that's Makarios. Third thing we've learned is that the certainty of these blessings, because these blessings are certain, that it's led, it leads Jesus' disciples into a wildly countercultural way of living, a wildly countercultural ethic. Look at what Jesus' ethic includes poverty of spirit, mourning, hunger for holiness. I just want to ask you is that ever the ethic any human civilization has striven towards? We're going to be poor and hungry. You ever heard that one? No, that is not, there's no survival of the fittest there at all. This is completely countercultural. Therefore, Therefore, we fully expect, at least I do as I'm reading this, I fully expect at this point for Jesus to say, okay, now it's time for some withdrawn monasticism. You see, the ethic you're going to live is so different and so wildly conflicting with the rest of the world around you, we're going to retire to the village, right? That's exactly what we expect to read. 
but that's not at all what happens in the scripture. Open your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, let's read verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, first book of your New Testament, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. No retreating to some village there, is it? Absolutely shocking twist. The, the exact opposite of retreat away into a monastery. Let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In your notes, you'll find my poor attempt to summarize the Messiah. Uh, your, your notes are in the middle of the worship guide you got when you came in. Look there, and you'll see that Jesus declares, you don't retreat. No, no, you shine. You shine. It's an amazing surprise, the, the opposite surprise of the village movie. Jesus uses two metaphors to illustrate his point. These have become so entrenched in our thinking that it, it, it often is that we miss the real meaning of these. So let's unpack these, and let's start with the salt metaphor, okay, the salt metaphor. Uh, one of our pastors, A.J. Rinaldi, uh, recently returned from two weeks of teaching and preaching on the Caribbean island of Bonaire, uh, and he brought all of us on staff back these, these chunks of salt, uh, Bonaire is a, is a fascinating place, beautiful reef, great diving there, but hardly any beaches to speak of uh, except salt beaches. And so they figured out a great way to make money, and they make a lot of money for this. Their number one export is they bring salt water in, seawater in, and let it dry out in these salt flats, and then as it evaporates, these big crystals are left behind. And those crystals are exported. They end up in the salt shaker on your table at your favorite restaurant or as salt licks for the cows that are in these fields all around our church. By the way, salt licks were used in ancient agriculture too. So that part would have made sense to Jesus' audience and us. Salt was used by Romans as seasoning on their food just as we use it now. But the Roman setting where Jesus spoke, it had two distinct critically important needs for salt that we don't understand today. And I need to point these out. Preserving food and disinfecting. Those were very important. When you see salt mentioned in the ancient world, in the classical world, that's what it's talking about. Preserve. So think about what we do with Ziploc bags and Clorox wipes, okay? That's what was done with salt. It was to preserve food, and it was to disinfect. And that's exactly what Jesus says his people are. Look, we, we act as disinfecting and preserving agents in society. The implication is this is why we're in the world, to make things taste good and to make things last. We... we we truly are a key ingredient in building to last. Without Christ followers, a society is much less tasteful. And without Christ followers, a society doesn't last as long. We have, we have holiness to impart. It is our calling to live out in the world, imparting the righteousness that we have received. This, this holiness, makarios, this blessing has been put in us. Now it is incumbent upon us to live it out. One more thing to note about Jesus' salt image. His Jewish audience certainly understood this. It's usually lost on us Gentiles. Uh, they would have looked at salt through the lens of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law required salt in every sacrifice, and that may give us some insight into what it means for Christ followers to be the salt of the earth. Um, Martin McDonald of our pulpit team, he wrote a great summary of this. He wrote me this. He said, Wayne, salt was an essential part of all sacrificial offerings. Uh, Leviticus 2.13 says that every single one. You do know most of the offerings were not burned up. I mean, the, the fully burnt offering was a rare kind of offering. Most of them were, were cooked and then used as food for the Levites and priests, which is great. Salt becomes important then for those, for the flavor, all right? Salt was used as an essential part of sacrificial offerings. As the Lord chose to include salt with the Old Testament sacrifices, are we the salt for Jesus' sacrifice? 
It could be that as salt heightens awareness and enhances reception of food, making it more desirable, we are to do the same with the existence of the Lord and his gospel, close quote. Now, whether that connection was intended by the Lord or not, the point is valid. We are to impart the tasty holiness that we have received. But when we stop imparting righteousness, we actually become merely another portion of the wreckage of this life, right? Look, Jesus says, saltless salt is useless and gets trampled. So what makes salt lose its flavor? Nothing. <laughs> we just got to deal with reality here. We're, we're saying the truth in, in, in its context. And folks, the truth is nothing makes NaCl lose its flavor. Sodium chloride is one of the most stable compounds on this entire planet. Now, because of that, some people say Jesus probably is speaking rhetorically here. He, he's, he's using hyperbole to, to emphasize that you must, we must live out the unchangeable truth of who we are. We, 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 this, is, this is the un, unavoidable truth is we must live out who we are. And that could be what he means by saying salt losing its salt. However, there is another possibility. Almost all the salt in Judea came from salt marshes uh, in, the, in the, western part of the, I mean, the western part of the country or from the Dead Sea. Um, most of the salt comes from the Dead Sea. This is a chunk of uh, just crystallized salt along the edge of the Dead Sea. There's huge chunks of it there. I grabbed this last time I was there. Can you see, if you, if you look really closely, maybe you can tell this isn't very white. Uh, this chunk of salt has a lot of brown in it, some impurities. That's because in the Dead Sea there's a lot of bitumen in the water and lots of other elements, and they get caught up in the salt. Here's what happens. When you put these chunks of salt into water, they dissolve, as all salt will in water. The ions break it down. When it recrystallizes, this is fascinating. You take dead sea salt and you let it, you put it in water, it, it disseminates, and then when you let it recrystallize, you evaporate the water, it, it no longer tastes salty because the chloride ions begin to bond with the other elements that were in there, and the sodium gets left on the bottom as kind of a precipitate, which can make it flammable. But anyway, um, uh, so, so it, doesn't, it doesn't taste salty anymore. And that could be what Jesus is talking about here. You, do you get it? The salt metaphor describes our purpose. Our purpose is to preserve and clean. The only danger comes when we get watered down. We get watered down, we lose our saltiness. Now, consider the light metaphor. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In our homes, we have electric lights that shine down from the ceiling. They're situated up high, so the light will spread throughout the room. In the classical Mediterranean world, uh, lamps like these were the main form of light. One simply took a, uh, a simple clay lamp, filled it with olive oil, stuck in some kind of fibers for a wick, lit the wick, voila, lumière, you have light, right? But you didn't leave it on the ground. I mean, you, you don't let oil lamp on the ground, children running around, straw floors, bad combination, right? It's not safe. Plus, you don't get any light that way. So when you find an ancient house, and most of them in Israel were not built with permanent type materials, so, but every now and then we'll find a house that was built out of stone, and about head height or higher all around the house, you'll see these sconces or niches built into the, into the side. Or there'll be places where you see holes, and that was because it was a bracket to hold up a, a ledge, and you would put the light up there so it could give light to all of the house. It's supposed to be funny when Jesus says, no one puts a lamp under a basket. <laughs> be stupid. Instead, if you need light, you put the oil in it, stand up on the wall. Now, the reference in verse 14 was probably based on setting. 
All right, Jesus is, think about where he's at. He's at some hill uh, in, near Capernaum. We don't know exactly which one, but it's somewhere near Capernaum. All right, that's where Jesus is teaching. And around here on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee is the city of Hippos. And I think Hippos could be very important to understanding verse 14. Let me, let me tell you about Hippos. When Alexander the Great conquered Israel, the Hellenists after him founded the town of Hippos way up here. They built it on top of an old Israeli settlement that was already falling apart. It was called Susita. And they built Hippos there. They called it, Hippos is, uh, is horse in Greek. They called it Hippos because they thought this looked like the back of a horse. I, anyway, that's what they thought. I don't know, maybe this was the tail. But, uh, but they thought that was the back of the horse. Hippos became a really, really important city. Uh, it towers 1,000 feet up over the level of the Sea of Galilee. It grew rich. It grew very important as part of the Decapolis League of Cities. Here's how significant Hippos was. By the time Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, Hippos was the home of the 10th Roman Legion. So a very powerful city. Now, on the far western edge of this city, the Greco-Romans built a huge temple, and they faced it with marble, okay? It was massive, 60 feet high, this thing, towering 1,000 feet above the Sea of Galilee. All that we have left is some of the tufa rocks that were used for the, the tufa stones that were used for one of the towers. Earthquake and, uh, and repurposing of materials has gotten rid of all the rest. But there's just a little bit of marble left, and you can see this thing was covered. It, it was, its facade was white marble, white limestone marble, 60 feet high, six stories high, a temple to Dionysius that was built looking to the west. Can you imagine... Maybe some of you are old enough to have driven in downtown Dallas back in the 70s when they were first putting those glass skyscrapers in and they hadn't yet figured out not to use hyper-reflective glass. You know, you'd be driving, ah! <laughs> you're driving along and you're blind, <laughs> wrecks everywhere, right? Can you imagine what this was like? The western Mediterranean sun shining on this facade that looks across white marble, aiming across the Sea of Galilee. It it truly was a city on a hill. It towered over all of Galilee. By the way, quick note just to finish with Hippos, that Hippos was a very pagan, pagan polis, but later it became a super important Christian center. I mean, it, from the 3rd to the 7th century, uh, there were six large churches in Hippos, and they sent out many, many missionaries. Uh, this, is, this is one of the churches. It was so fancy, it had a green room for the pastor or elders, whoever was teaching, to, to prepare before they went in. Sadly, the earthquake that came, massive earthquake through all the Mediterranean world, January 18th, 749, it destroyed the city, destroyed all the surrounding area, killed tens of thousands of people. Now, back to Jesus' sermon. Since every other illustration in the Sermon on the Mount is based on real-world examples, okay, everything we're going to read in the Sermon on the Mount is based on real, tangible world examples, I think it seems very likely the city on the hill was as well. I picture Jesus, he's sitting here probably with his back to the water because of the reflective powers of the water amplifying, and he's talking to his disciples, that's who he's teaching, but we know there's a big crowd up the mountain, and, and, he, and he sits there and says, you are, and he points across, the light of the world. Look at that. You're a city on a hill. Can I just add a few words for a minute, and you'll recognize this is just my addition. I think the meaning is something like this. If that crappy excuse for a temple, which is full of idols and sin, if that nasty, horrible place that celebrates terrible things can be such a light, you can be far greater. Can you imagine? 
That's nothing. You're the real light of the world. And then Jesus lays out precisely how that works. We live brightly. We live out loud. Our life purpose is laid out here. Look at verse 16. It says, we do good works. Why, everybody? Why? So people will glorify God. We are here to glorify God and to give other people reason to praise Him. Stephen Curtis Chapman had this in mind when he wrote one of, one of his best songs. Love this song. He said, think about this. Try to keep a bird from singing after it's soared up in the sky. Give the sun a cloudless day and tell it not to shine. Now, think about this. If we really have been given the gift of a life that will never end, and if we've been filled with living hope, we're, we're going to overflow. And if God's love is burning in our hearts, we're going to glow. There's just no way to keep it in. So wake the neighbors. Get the word out. Come on, crank up the music. Climb a mountain and shout. This is life we've been given. It's meant to be lived out. So la, 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 live out loud. Right? That's what the Lord calls his followers to do. Live out loud. You don't retreat. You don't go hide in some village. You shine. We, we share the salt of Jesus' good news, just as he commissioned us to do. We shine his light through good deeds so that God is glorified. And so if you look at it, in this short paragraph, Jesus actually is laying out two of the four aspects that comprise the whole mission of Jesus' churches. I take, uh, let's do, we haven't done this in a while. Put your stuff down. Stand up. Everybody stand up, please. Let's review the mission of a local church, the mission of the church right now. Thank you. We'll come back to it. You can get your stuff. But, but, uh, but look up here. You answer the questions. Who are we, everybody? We are a redeemed community. What do we do? What do we do? We do the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Jesus commanded to teach people to observe all that he taught. So it's not just evangelism, although it is that it is discipleship. It is growing up in Christ. How is that done? By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? To what purpose? For the glory of God. Do you, do you see? So we, we do the Great Commission. That Shine. You're the light of the world. For what purpose? Glory to God. He said, so people will glorify your Father in heaven. This little short paragraph has two of the four ideas that comprise everything a local church is to be about. All right, let's say it all together. Let's say our church mission statement. For Frisco Bible, all together, we are redeemed community, doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. You may be seated. Now let's review where we are in Jesus' sermon. This is where we are. We, we, we have the introduction, and the introduction shows us it's all about holiness. And, and we have the setting in verses 1 and 2, then the nine beatitudes we studied last time, and then what we just read, the salt and light metaphors. That's the end of the introduction. Now we get to the thesis, okay, the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. Greater righteousness is required of Jesus' followers. Greater righteousness than anyone else. And then Jesus gives <laughs> brilliant antitheses. He gives six contrasts that we're going to study next time. Six contrasts with the Pharisaical version of Moses' law versus the real understanding of the law under Jesus. And then the summary of the thesis is in chapter 5, verse 48, 48 last verse of chapter 5, which is perfection. You are to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right? So here in the introduction and the thesis, we learn that following Jesus is all about holiness. It's about perfect righteousness. Now, we're going to cover the antitheses next time. For now, read the thesis statement uh, and the summary. Go to verse 17. Verse 17. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter... Not a jot or tittle will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, past all of the contrasts, down to the last verse, the, the summary of the thesis, chapter uh, 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. On the right side of our notes, you'll see our headline for this section, be great, be great. Of course, that brings up a question you're asking in your um, President Trump imitation. How can we make Christianity great again? We want the best Christians, right? How can that happen, right? Great question. Thank you, Mr. President. I'm so glad you asked. There are three things we do to make Christianity great again. First, understand fulfillment. Understand fulfillment. I am, I am blessed to officiate many weddings. A wedding is a fulfillment. Singlehood is gone. In a moment, singlehood vanishes, and the two are, are declared one before God. Tell me, does that mean that the husband ceases to exist? Is that what that means, yes or no? No. Does the wife lose her personhood in getting married, yes or no? No, no, not hardly. Far from losing anything, their individuality is fulfilled in their unity. One with each other, they're complete. This is the purpose for which they were made. That's what Jesus is describing in verse 17. He didn't come to destroy Moses' law or the Old Testament prophet writings. He came to fulfill them. They are made whole by being joined with the Messiah. This is the purpose for which they were made. The law was a tutor to lead people to Christ. It, it was the measuring rod to show how our holiness is, is skewed. It shows our need. The prophets are necessary. They spoke of Messiah as the Redeemer, this suffering servant who's going to pay for sin and make a way for our salvation. The old British pastor, Matthew Henry, explained this so well. Um, I like this so much, I put it in your notes. Take a look, Matthew, Matthew Henry. 400 years ago, he said this in London as he was teaching. The strictness of the law showed men their need for salvation by grace through faith. And the ceremonies shadowed forth Christ as fulfilling the righteousness and bearing the curse of the law. So that even under the law, all who were justified before God, means made right before God, obtained that blessing by faith, whereby they were made partakers of the perfect righteousness of the promised Redeemer. That's the Makarios, that's their blessing, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. The law is not destroyed, nor the intention of the lawgiver disappointed, but full satisfaction being made by the death of Christ for our breach of the law, the end is gained. That is, Christ has fulfilled the whole law. Therefore, whoever believeth in him is counted just before God as much as though he had fulfilled the whole law himself. Close quote. All God's people said, when a person trusts in Jesus, he or she is joined to Jesus in unity because the Christian is now just in heaven according to God's law. In fact, Jesus a number of times uses a wedding picture to illustrate that unity. And when, and when that believer chooses to follow Jesus, to be, to be more than just a believer, to become a follower, a disciple of Christ, he or she then lives out that righteousness, lives out Jesus' ethic on earth. The, the focus changes from just who I am in heaven to who I am on earth. It, it, Jesus, Jesus tells us the follower is going to live in holiness as a fulfillment of his law. And this extends to the smallest detail. There is no aspect of the law that is still unfulfilled. There aren't any moral laws in Moses' law that still operate in ceremonial laws that don't. The whole Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus. That means legalism is nonsense. Earning one's own salvation by keeping rules is absurd. Jesus fulfilled the law. License is also crazy. Jesus doesn't violate Moses' code. <laughs> he wrote it. 
There is no rivalry between the law and the Messiah. Fulfillment means Jesus keeps the entire ethic of the law, every jot and tittle. Jesus is not some French revolutionary, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just tear up the law and say, huh, there is no law, live however you want. You know, that's, not, that's not what Jesus does here. He fulfills the law. This is huge. Think this through. Think it through. This means that, like, like a marriage, what Jesus does with the Old Testament law has a legal basis. When somebody trusts Messiah Jesus, that person is actually joining in a cosmic legal contract. Jesus has completed the law. So joined to him, we are completely justified before God. The great reformer um, John Calvin communicated this succinctly. Maybe his only succinct comment he ever made. Um, he said, this then argues very well. Employing the doctrine of the law makes faith stand in justice. Oh, that's well said. Our faith stands in justice because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Moses trusted God. He trusted God. The, trust is the foundation of all justification before God. But Moses didn't get to experience faith standing in justice. He, he didn't get to experience the fullness of true justice because Messiah had not yet come. And, and the Lord provided an awesome picture to help us understand this. Those of you who know, know the Bible a bit, um, when he met with God, what happened to Moses' face when he met one-on-one -on -one with God? What happened? It glowed, right. It was reflecting the Shekinah glory of God. The very glory of God was, was reflected off of Moses' face. Did it last? No, it did not. It faded every time, which is why 2 Corinthians 3, 13 tells us, we're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. Oh, this is amazing. It's not just a statement of fact. This is giving us a picture of what the Old Testament law is. It, the Old Testament law shows God's glory. It shows God's glory, but it was never intended to last forever. It was intended to fade and be completed. In Jesus, we can and should shine always. We're not like Moses. We can shine always because we are joined with the Messiah who has come, and we don't hide our faces like Moses did. We shine. All God's people said, amen. How can Christians be great? By understanding fulfillment. Number two, by focusing on the true goal. 20 and 48 again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 48, the, the summary, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The goal is godly perfection. But we got a problem here. God's perfection is unattainable for humans. It, period. It's impossible. It, it, it's like this. I need a child. Some child who's here this hour, I need a volunteer. I need a kiddo. Somebody, where's a kiddo? You want to come? Come here, bud. Come here. Come on, brave. All right, come here, buddy. Here, tell everybody your name. What's your name? Brave. brave. Come on, brave. Come here. All right, let's be brave. All right. Brave, I want you to come right here. Look, do you see that? Can you see? Look up there. What is that? Tell everybody. It's, it's a balloon. Okay, that balloon it's just like God's perfection, okay? And it's supposed to be yours. So jump up and get it. Go ahead. <laughs> Brave, you're, you're supposed, wait, do it right. You're supposed to grant, that is, that is yours, God's perfection. Brave, you're not getting there. Everybody give Brave a hand, please. Is there any way to get it? No, it can't be done. There is no way, absolutely no way that he can jump up to that balloon. It is not possible. In the same way, we cannot jump up to God's perfection and pretending doesn't cut it okay having a lesser balloon is lame 
As President Trump would say, we want the best balloons, right? We don't want to settle for droopy, wimpy balloons, right? Uh, that's what legalism and license are. Legalism and license are wimpy balloons that don't make it up to the ceiling. Uh, think about license. What is license? License pretends that pleasing my flesh is, is compatible with following Jesus. Oh, I'm a Christ follower, but I still do all the sinful things I want. It's ridiculous. License adopts a mindset as if I'm not unified with Christ. I can just take it when I want to. Right? It, it, let me summarize it this way. It doesn't do the good works that God prepared beforehand for me to do. That's license. What about legalism? Well, legalism pretends that humans can do the impossible. And so what it does is it settles for something that's not really, because you can't get there. It settles for a balloon that's lost all its air and is kind of wimpy and says, look what I got. Look what I found. I jumped up and grabbed it. And it, it's a pretense. And what's sad is it often seems holy to humanize, but it's very short of God's goal of perfection. L legalism is ridiculous. All of that work pretending to earn God's perfection is really filthy rags. Our goal is not license, a wimpy balloon that falls short of Jesus' holiness. Neither is our goal legalism, trying to pretend that we please God through our efforts. Our goal is holiness. Uh, Brave, come back to me, please. Brave, come here. I need you again. Come here. Come here. All right. Now, Brave, come over here. Nobody noticed this this morning. I put it out here before you guys got here. What is over here in this corner right here? What is that? It's a balloon and uh, a mylar balloon. Very good. Okay, what is this? See if you can reach that one. Very nice. You know why you can reach that one? Because it came all the way down to you. In fact, I got a whole lot of extra because it would have ruined the whole illustration if I wanted it to be to you and I left it too high. So, um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do what I did when my kids were little. Hold your arm out, buddy. Okay, I'm going to even tie this on your arm so that you can't lose it, right? And that's sort of a picture of what of what God does for us. You see, anybody who, anybody who trusts in Jesus, they, God's holiness has already come to them, and we are permanently tied. Here, hold the rest of the string. Your mom will need to cut that. Okay, there you go. Give Brave a hand. There you go. You get to keep the bloom. See you, bud. That, that's us. God's holiness through Jesus is imputed into us. It reaches all the way down. So, so anyone who grabs a hold of that can can have righteousness forever. Makarios, they are blessed. They are permanently affixed to the Messiah and to God's holiness. If you have never trusted Jesus, do so right now. I, it, grab the Messiah who came from heaven for you. He died for you. He rose again from the dead, paying for your sins, just as the prophets and the law predicted. He alone brings God's perfection to you. Trust him. Let's pray right now. We've got a little bit more to do, but let's pray right now. Father, I pray for anyone studying with me who has never trusted on Jesus. I pray that they will take hold of that which is taking hold of them. Friend, Jesus, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead just so you, a sinner like me, could be just before God. You could be perfect in Jesus. But it's only in Jesus. He paid the price for your sin. Believe on him so that you can be made right before God. Trust him right now. If you just believed in Jesus, raise your hand. Everybody else is praying, but I want to rejoice with you. Raise your hand good. Father, I pray for the new believers here and the long-term ones that we will 
we will recognize the makarios, the blessing that we have in Jesus, and we will impart it. We do have a responsibility, Lord. Help us with it. Amen. All right, let's talk about that. Before we close, there's one final point for those who would follow Jesus. How, do we, how are we great? How do we make Christianity great again? Third point, recognize our responsibility. It's inherent in the text. Take a look again. Uh, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that, that has an imputed idea to it. it is, we can't reach the balloon. It is that God has come to us. But we have a responsibility to practice and to teach, to live out Jesus' whole ethic. Empowered by God, we are to be righteous. We, we, we're to be who we're made to be and glorify God. Christians have a responsibility. Our, our forefathers did an awesome job capturing this in our, in our tongue, in English. They took the word response, which is from a French word and from an older Latin word, and they took the word ability, which has two roots, one in, in Welsh and one in Latin, and they put them together to describe things we're supposed to do. But, but don't miss the underlying point. You can only have responsibility because you have the ability to respond. Right? Because you have the capacity, the ability to respond, that's why you can do what needs to be done. L Louis Barbieri noted this in the passage. Look what he saw. Jesus said he would fulfill the law by obeying it perfectly and would fulfill the prophet's predictions of the Messiah and his kingdom. But the responsibility of the people was made clear. The righteousness they were currently seeking, that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, was insufficient for entrance into the kingdom Jesus was offering. The righteousness he demanded was not merely external, it was a true inner righteousness based on faith in God's word. This is clear from what follows. So read with me again Jesus' introduction to his ethic. It's what we call the Beatitudes. Read it with me, please. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Because I know that the kingdom of heaven is mine, that it can be mine by trusting Jesus. I become poor in spirit. This is where it must start. I don't, I, I don't try to earn my own salvation. I'm poor in spirit because of the makarios, the blessing. I know kingdom of heaven is mine. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are, I can be gentle. You know why? Because I know, I know the end of the story. I, I'm going to inherit this earth. Therefore, I can be gentle. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That is our responsibility. Because of what God has done for us, our makarios, we can do what he wants us to do. We can do what God wants done because of what God has done. The makarios he lavishes on us, providing the kingdom of heaven and comfort and mercy and all the rest, allows us to be great, to shine, to do what he wants us to do. Let me, let me put it in fancy theological terms. Because he has imputed righteousness to us, we can impart righteousness in his world. Maybe a famous passage from the Apostle Paul can help us really understand this. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. All God's people said? Now here's what's sad. Wonderful truth of God, important truth of God. And yet just about everybody stops reading at the end of verse 9. Don't. See, verse 10 has a for there, a, a henna in Greek, meaning this is what follows. Here's the, here's the why. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christians are saved. Hooray! They're saved by trust alone and Jesus alone through God's grace alone. Verses 8 and 9. Hooray! Works has no place. Boasting has no place. But don't stop there. God works us over so we can do good works. He prepared them for us, not to earn his love, but so that people will glorify God. So let's act on this. Let's act on this. Every one of you here who wants to seriously follow Jesus, everyone, wherever you may be studying with us, write an answer to the first question at the bottom of our notes. Uh, write down an answer to this. What is one thing hiding my light? By the way, study after study has shown that when you write something down, it has a much higher rate of actually being seen in your life than when you just think it. Get a pen. The lady next to you has seven in the bottom of her purse. Get a pen right now. Everybody who wants to, you're serious about following Jesus, write down your answer. What is a thing, I know there may be many, but give me one thing, give yourself one thing that is hiding my light. Or if you want to think of it this way, what is watering down my saltiness? What, what is one thing eroding my distinctive capacity as a disciple? Write it down. What's the bushel over my lamp? You got it? Now commit to eliminate that thing. By God's grace, by his empowerment, eliminate. I know it's really complex. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not too complex for God. Maybe it's simple. But partner with God to get rid of whatever it is that is leaching out your Christian flavor. Got it? Question number two. What is one good work that I need to do to shine for God? What's one thing, something that I need to do? And don't ask me to answer for you. The Holy Spirit of God is with you. Surely there's something that has been troubling you as God is working on you. There's got to be something. If you can't think of anything that you need to do, a good work, look, look back at the Beatitudes. Do, do, you need to be, do you need to be merciful to somebody? Do you need to make peace with someone? Do, do, you, need, do you need to show gentleness? What, what is it? Those are how we're to impart God's righteousness. Which one is weak in you? I know. I know it seems like the world's going to eat you alive if you really act holy, if you really live this out. And they may. But the answer is not to hide away in some creepy M. Night village. The solution is to shine brighter. Shine brighter. Whatever it is God has shown you to do, write it down. And by his power, act on it. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. That we will act on what you have given us to do. The good works we need to do to shine for you. That we will eliminate the bushel baskets that are hiding our light. Watering down our saltiness. Father, in a word, I pray that we will, we will impart righteousness. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.